You have heard about Nikola Tesla. You have definitely heard about the Great Pyramids in Egypt. But what if I told you that Tesla may have probably uncovered the ancient mystery surrounding the pyramids? Wait, what? Is this a crossover episode? Nope. It's highly probable that the secrets of the pyramids are hidden in plain sight. But first, let's recap what we know about the pyramids. What's so mysterious about them? I mean, they are just old quirky buildings, aren't they? One of the biggest questions is how they were built. Some people think that the pyramids were created by people using only their hands and muscles. But others think that there might have been some kind of crazy energy source that we don't know about yet. Like what if aliens helped out or something? Just kidding. But this idea of some unknown energy source being used to build the pyramids has been around for ages. Even in old texts, like the pyramid texts, it talks about how the gods gave us something to build a great power. So maybe there was something really powerful and mysterious going on back then? Who knows? Back in the early 1900s, he got obsessed with the Great Pyramids of Egypt. He read numerous books about these ancient structures and was blown away by how much energy they seemed to have. At that time, not many people knew much about electricity, and Tesla started to wonder if there was some kind of advanced tech hidden in the pyramids. He had an idea that the power of the pyramids had to do with electromagnetism, and he put a lot of time and effort into trying to figure out the mystery. Tesla had some pretty unusual theories about the Great Pyramids. He thought that they could actually store and move electricity, which could then be used to power up the areas around them. He also had this theory that the pyramids were built using some kind of crystal energy. He believed that the chambers inside the pyramids could have these super powerful crystals that could control the electromagnetic fields. But that's not all. Tesla also had this idea that the materials used to make the pyramids had properties that allowed them to trap energy from the sun and the moon. And not just a little bit of energy. He thought that the pyramid could actually create this massive energy field that could light up whole cities or even brighten up dark places. He thought that the pyramids could be used as giant power plants to generate electricity and run machines. Tesla even believed that the pyramids were somehow linked to cosmic energy, which could be used for spiritual enlightenment and healing. How very new age of him. Anyway, Tesla wasn't just pulling these ideas out of thin air. He was seriously into studying everything he could about the pyramids, from ancient artifacts and texts to hieroglyphs and drawings. And he came up with this idea that the pyramids were designed to be energy amplifiers, and some kind of unknown energy source was used during their construction. Some people thought Tesla was eccentric for coming up with these theories, but his ideas have actually had a huge impact on the way we think about the pyramids today. Researchers and scholars have been digging into his theories for years and using them to uncover some of the biggest mysteries surrounding these ancient structures. For example, recently scientists have used theoretical physics to investigate how the Great Pyramid of Egypt would react to certain radio waves. They found out that if the radio waves were a certain length, the pyramid could concentrate the energy inside its rooms and focus it under its base. The scientists did lots of calculations to figure this out. They first thought about what radio wavelengths would work best. Then they made a model of how the pyramid would react to the waves. 
They figured out how much of the energy from the waves would get absorbed or spread out. Lastly, they checked how the energy would move around inside the pyramid when the waves hit it. To help explain all of this, the scientists use something called multipole analysis. This is when you take a complicated object and break it down into simpler parts. Then you can see how each part interacts with the energy that's coming in. It's like taking apart a puzzle to see how each piece fits together. The researchers are interested in how all of this can be used in the future. They want to make really tiny particles that can do the same thing as the pyramid, but with light. By changing the size, shape, and the material of these particles, they can control how the light moves around them. This can be really useful for things like making tiny sensors or super-efficient solar cells. The scientists had to make some guesses when they were doing their research. They assumed that there weren't any hidden spaces inside the pyramid and that the material used to build it was all the same. But even with these guesses, they still made some pretty impressive discoveries. But the pyramid study is not the only proof that Tesla was ahead of his time. There are more Tesla's projects that seemed unrealistic at the time, but that scientists and enthusiasts reevaluate and try to implement today. Let's talk about Tesla's most ambitious project, the Wardenclyffe Transmission Tower. Back in 1900, Tesla was already a big shot when it came to electrical engineering in America. People were blown away by his amazing inventions and the fact that he managed to outdo Thomas Edison in the battle of currents. However, Tesla wasn't content to rest on his laurels. He decided to embark on his most ambitious project yet, the transmission tower at Wardenclyffe. It was built between 1901 and 1905, and it was based on one of Tesla's breakthrough ideas. He had a vision to make the impossible possible by creating a global wireless communication system. It would use Earth itself as a conductor, transmitting music, news, stock market reports, secured military communications, and even facsimile images. Does it sound familiar? Right, it sounds just like the internet that we use today, only without the use of any wires. But Tesla had a much bigger dream in mind, to transmit power wirelessly. He already proved that high-frequency signals could be sent without any wires using his Tesla coil transformers, and this sparked his obsession with wireless energy transmission. His vision was to not only transform the way we communicate, but also to find a way to transfer power currents globally by tapping into the Earth's natural energy. Tesla believed that there was an abundance of free energy all around us that could be used for humanity's benefit. In 1899, he conducted some top-secret experiments and got convinced that it was possible to transmit electrical power through the Earth's upper atmosphere. This is actually how the Wardenclyffe Tower was created. It was supposed to be the prototype station for a network of towers all over the globe that would provide the whole world with wireless energy. Unfortunately, Tesla didn't have the resources or the patience of his investors to bring this project to fruition. It ran into all sorts of financial problems and roadblocks, and in 1917, the unfinished tower was finally torn down for scrap metal to pay off Tesla's mounting debts. Now it remains a sad reminder that even the greatest minds can sometimes fall short of their dreams. The original red brick laboratory, however, is still there, and it is the only Tesla lab that has survived. Fun fact, in 2017, a film crew made a crazy discovery. They used ground-penetrating radar to explore the area around Wardenclyffe, and they found a whole series of tunnels stretching for hundreds of feet underneath the site. Nobody knows exactly what these tunnels were used for, but people have been speculating for years that they were part of Tesla's grand plan. 
Wardenclyffe, of course, is a major landmark for Tesla enthusiasts from all over the world. Who knows, maybe someone will finally crack the mystery of the tunnels one day. But even if they don't, the legacy of Tesla and his amazing ideas lives on. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Now fungi are everywhere. You may see mold on an old lemon in your fridge. It's a fungus. You may notice fungi on your mattress and the tiles in your bathroom. There may be several million species of fungi in the world, and most of them are unexplored. Of the fungus among us, some are pretty harmless, such as those that appear in the dark corner of your fridge. And others can turn a living creature into a zombie. And this is not some movie, but reality. Let's visit a rainforest to see how cordyceps fungus turns the life of some insects into a nightmare. A tiny, almost invisible fungus spore floats in the air and lands on the ant's back. It doesn't notice anything and works all day for the good of the colony. Meanwhile, the spore penetrates its body. A couple of days later, the ant's behavior gets strange. The poor thing shivers, it sleeps badly, and it doesn't eat enough. Other ants see it as a threat, so they expel their brother from the anthill. But the infected ant doesn't want to return because it can't control its life anymore. The fungus multiplies inside it. It spreads throughout the body through the insect's blood. It slowly captures the entire nervous system, begins to control the muscles, and affects the brain. Cordyceps change the ant's behavior and make it move in the direction it wants, against the ant's will. At this point, the animal turns into a zombie. It wanders through the forest alone and is looking for some high place. It can be a blade of grass, a plant, or a bush. Next, the ant climbs to a height of 10 inches and tightly grabs the stem with its jaws. Nothing can remove it from there because the ant can't relax its jaws anymore. The insect remains to wait there for several days. All this time, the fungus sort of feeds on the ant and grows slowly. It comes out of the ant from different sides, twists, and diverges in different directions. Then the parasite grows, pulls up, and releases thousands of small spores into the air. They fly all over the forest, fall into the water, or leaves, animal fur, or in the hair of people walking in the woods. In almost all of these places, spores don't live long. But some of them will find their host. Some spores can get on the area with working ants. And when the fungus lands on some of them, everything will start again. Now imagine that this tiny monster evolves and starts attacking people. Scientists said this was impossible, since the human body temperature is too high for fungi. But after all, the temperature of the whole planet is gradually rising, right? This means that the fungus will adapt to warming. And when it happens, tiny spores will penetrate the human body through the ears, nose, and mouth and get into the blood. There, it will begin its reproduction and capture of the nervous system. The person will have a fever and then experience hallucinations. Soon, they will lose their sanity and want only one thing – to share the fungus with others. If the fungus can make an ant cling tightly to a leaf with its jaws, then it will be able to control people's muscles and even increase their strength. But infected people won't attack others. 
they'll climb on roofs of buildings or trees and fall asleep forever. The fungus, meanwhile, germinates and releases its spores. The wind picks them up and spreads them all over the world. During the first weeks of infection, while people are still not prepared enough, fungi will spread rapidly and take over the planet. The remnants of the survivors who manage to avoid contact will hide underground and then build bunkers. First, gas masks will become more valuable than gold. Still, when people realize that humankind's survival is more important than business, gas masks will become publicly available. As terrible as it may sound, all this is good news. Because you don't have to run away from the infected and fight with them. All cities will introduce quarantine zones. People will live inside buildings with powerful air ventilation systems and go outside only with gas masks. If people understand they are infected, they will calmly inform the police and leave the city. They will get food supplies, and their loved ones will get permission to be with them in gas masks until the infected fall asleep. There will be fungi everywhere on the streets. You'll see how colossal mushroom plantations grow on the roofs and walls of buildings. The air will resemble a misty haze because of the intense concentration of fungal spores. But it's not dangerous if you have a gas mask. The zombie apocalypse will be pretty calm and quiet. But still, it will be difficult in the world. Not because of the fungi, but because of other people. Not all cities will be in order. Anarchy will reign in the world. Looters and robbers in gas masks will walk on the streets. Food will take a lot of work to get. Electricity in cities won't run 24-7, but just a couple of hours per day. But all this time, there will be hope for a bright future in people's hearts. Scientists will actively work on a vaccine and invent it sooner or later. But the fungus will also evolve. Perhaps it will defeat the vaccine, and then people will have to create a new cure. Also, the fungus may try to switch to other carriers. These can be birds, livestock, and any mammals. Imagine an infected deer with a big growing fungus on its horns. Microorganisms will rule the world, and the population of large creatures will decrease. The fungus will adapt to the water for thousands of years and begin to infect the fish. And soon, the whole planet will turn into one giant mushroom. Okay, calm down, that's not going to happen. And here's why. Cordyceps have spent millions of years of evolution to adapt precisely to the cold body of an ant. No more, no less. The fungus's internal abilities are designed only to infect certain insects living next to them. For example, cordyceps from Thailand can infect an ant somewhere in Los Angeles. Therefore, don't worry that it will suddenly become able to attack a human. There is no suddenness in evolution. It's a long and challenging process. In addition, the fungus has no reason to switch to warm-blooded carriers. It feels fine in the environment of ants and has no problems with multiplying. If ants disappear as a species and people start living next to the fungus, it will begin evolution. But it may take thousands or even millions of years of genetic changes. However, don't relax yet. There is a type of fungi that has met all the conditions to gain the ability to infect humans. It's called Candida auris. It was discovered in Japan in 2009 and shocked scientists when they found it inside people. Biologists said the fungus could evolve because of rising temperatures in some areas. A few years later, the fungus was found in many countries around the world. 
Antifungal medications do little to help against it. Its symptoms are difficult to determine at the beginning. And the consequences of its infection can be severe, especially in people with poor immunity. Scientists are concerned about this microorganism, but are already making a vaccine. The medicine helped to defeat the fungus in mice, and soon doctors hope to release a vaccine for humans. Infection occurs through human fluids, blood, saliva, and sputum. Fungi are a separate kingdom on our planet, but not all of them are bad. They're necessary for our Earth to support life. They enrich the soil with valuable substances and digest harmful substances. Fungi help plants get out of the water and adapt to land millions of years ago. 90% of plants won't survive today without fungi. There are organisms that look like huge nets. These networks of special tubes are called mycelium. We only see the tip of the iceberg, which is called mushrooms. It doesn't have one form. It can transform, move through underground labyrinths, and change roots. There's a lot of information about it, but this is a topic for a separate video. Meanwhile, mushrooms are delicious when sautéed over a low flame with onions and butter. Try it! That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. At the beginning of the 20th century, somewhere off the coast of West Africa, a German steamship was leaving the port. Suddenly, the weather got worse and the vessel entered a thick fog. The sailors ran aground on a sandbank close to the shore. Luckily, no one was hurt, and they were even able to save their precious cargo. But the ship was stuck in the sand for good. And it was not alone there. Nearly the entire length of the western coast of Namibia is called Skeleton Coast. If the name sounds scary, that's because it is. This 976-mile-long beach line is among the most dangerous places on Earth. The local Bushmen tribes believe that their supreme deity made this land when it was angry. The Portuguese were the first Europeans to set foot in Namibia in the 15th century. And yep, they didn't like Skeleton Coast either. Portuguese explorers thought this land presented the gates to the underworld. This is the place where the Namib Desert meets the Atlantic Ocean. It might be dangerous, but it's actually beautiful. Plus, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. If Skeleton Coast had a PR manager, they would quit on the first day on the job. The area is not exactly tourist-friendly because of its geography and history. Beneath the sand and the waves, there is a secret ocean currently lurking for unsuspecting sailors. It's called Benguela Current. It flows towards the north along the coast of southern Africa. This part of the Atlantic is rich in marine life, but the current's land neighbor isn't that happy with the deal. This arid climate created the Namib Desert, one of the driest regions on Earth. And that marine life I just mentioned? It's sharks. 11 species of them to be exact. And yes, the great white decides to pop by once in a while. So far, we've got a desert landscape, strong currents, and sharks. Not a place for a beachside resort, definitely. But if someone ends up on Skeleton Coast, will they know they're in danger? Don't worry, they will. The beach is littered with wrecks of all sizes and shapes. If you remember that German ship I mentioned in the very beginning, its massive and rusted stern is now sticking out from the desert sand. 
There are some 500 wrecks in total scattered along the coast, and it's a mixed crowd, from Portuguese galleons centuries old to ships that ran ashore here in the 21st century. A modern fishing ship called Zela India managed to slip from its tow rope in 2008 and ended up on Skeleton Coast. Okay, it didn't escape on its own, it had some help from the elements, but it's better to be a tourist attraction on a beach than to be broken up for scrap. That's where the trawler was originally going, poor thing. Skeleton Coast's most famous inhabitant, to call it such a place, is the wreck of the Dunedin Star. The British cargo liner ran aground here in 1942. The massive rescue operation that followed reveals why it's so dangerous for sailors to end up here. The rescuers managed to save all of the crew and passengers, but at a heavy price. An aircraft and a tugboat were lost in the process. It took the last of the rescuers a full two months to return home to Cape Town. Why, you might wonder? One look at the map of the region reveals the reason. It's an endless sea of yellow, which is the sand. There are so few roads here, so Skeleton Coast is hard to reach by land. There are also legal obstacles. You need a special permit to drive into the area. But the skeletons in the name of the area don't only refer to ships, they also stand for animal bones. Most of these belong to whales and seals. Many animals have adapted to the area, so lions and hyenas roam the coastline in search of a meal. Yeah, now there are hungry lions as well, as if those sharks weren't enough. Other animals with a temporary residence on Skeleton Coast include elephants, cheetahs, leopards, and giraffes. In 1971, the Namibian authorities established a national park here, but except for surfers, after an adrenaline rush, they don't get many visitors. You can understand why. The Namib Desert is the oldest desert in the world, and it's not very tourist-friendly either. Those who travel to the region should pack sunscreen and a warm winter jacket. A weird combo, right? Well, not so much when you think that during the day, temperatures soar over 110 degrees Fahrenheit. At night, the air temperature drops below freezing. What a climate roller coaster! And that's not the final danger. Yep, there's more. Remember how that German ship got lost in thick fog? Yeah, it wasn't a one-off event. Because of the region's climate, fog shows up frequently. Sailors should cover their ears now, but this fog is actually good for wildlife. This is their only source of water in the Namib Desert. Reptiles and mammals have adapted to the harsh climate. They use as little water as possible. Shifting sands, thick fog, strong currents, lions, and sharks. Not the stuff you would put in a tourist booklet, but Skeleton Coast isn't the only beach on Earth you wouldn't want to spend your vacation on. I will take you to Cape Tribulation in Australia. The area covers some 48 square miles in the northwestern part of the continent. And no, the area is not as dry as Skeleton Coast. It's part of the Daintree Rainforest. You could say that here, it is the rainforest, not the desert that meets the ocean. The beach at Cape Tribulation is straight from a postcard. But looks can be deceiving. Hmm, Australia? Probably sharks. No, crocodiles are out here to get you if you decide to go for a dip in the sea. There are saltwater crocodiles that the locals call salties. Well, that's a cute nickname for such a dangerous reptile. And it's not just them. The wildlife seems to have a beef with visitors. 
From October to June, the waters around Cape Tribulation are full of box jellyfish. Their venom affects the human cardiovascular system. When touched by a jellyfish out at sea, swimmers won't have enough time to reach land for help. Vinegar helps neutralize the sting, so you might want to keep a spare bottle in your luggage. Crocodiles and jellyfish sound dangerous, but there's one more animal you should look after. It's the wild boar. It might sound funny, but you won't laugh when you're being chased by one of these across the beach. 21 million wild boars live in Australia. They're mostly active at night, making it even more dangerous if they charge at you. The best defense is running in circles. Wild boars can't cut corners well. That's probably why we don't see many of them taking up careers as race drivers. Cape Tribulation has one last danger installed for you, and it's not an animal. Out here, even the trees are plotting against visitors. The stinging tree got its name for a reason. If you try to pick one of its beautiful red berries, it'll fight back. Its prickles are like tiny glass shards. The less than pleasant effect on your skin will last for a month. Then there is this wait-a-while bush. Who keeps naming them like this? This long vine has spikes that grab hold and just don't let go. They are so strong, they can pull a human off a horse. You'll have to wait for someone to come by and save you from this thorny grabber. If you are about to cross this Australian beach from the vacation list, hold on for a second. Tourism is booming here. The local authorities have restricted access to all of the danger zones. Visitors go swimming in dreamy water holes that are surrounded by lush vegetation. There are even ropes to swing from. Now, that's a beach you can finally relax on. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. 50 ships and 20 airplanes have gone missing. Many people have disappeared and mysterious forces might have... Oh wait, the wrong script. This Bermuda Triangle is located in Transylvania. My bad. So... Once upon a time in the heart of Transylvania, there was a mysterious place that people named the Bermuda Triangle of Transylvania. Look at these twisted trees and their tangled undergrowth. It seems like some evil creature may appear from behind a tree at any moment. There might even be ghosts and mysterious creatures that came from space, as stories said. The forest became so popular in the 1960s when a man was chilling there on a warm August afternoon with his girlfriend and a couple of friends. Suddenly, his girlfriend pointed at something unusual in the sky. A man came closer to the spot where she was standing and, to his surprise, saw it too. It was a weird silver disc shining in the sky. He quickly pulled out his camera and took four photos before the creepy object bolted away. The object was there for a mere two minutes, but the man developed his film and the picture ended up being published in local papers. Many people were skeptical about this. They claimed that those were most likely some weather balloons that looked like a spaceship because they were photographed in odd lighting. But no weather balloons, blimps, or any other objects were in the sky above the forest on that day. Spooky, huh? That's not the only campfire legend from that area. Stories say that those who ventured too deep into the murky depths of this creepy place often did not return, which is how it got its nickname in the first place. There was a shepherd who entered the forest together with his 200 sheep. They were never found again. 
people have also been whispering stories about a five-year-old girl who disappeared one day. She re-emerged one day, five years later, wearing the same clothes as the day she went missing. Plus, she hadn't aged a day. There are people who entered the forest and did manage to return, but with severe burns, high fever, and some other health issues they didn't have before. Some were sure that happened because the subsoil had lots of natural uranium with a high level of radioactivity. And according to others, it's not unusual that you come to this forest and feel like someone's watching you or your electronic devices just switch off. And now, here's something that's not a legend. The forest has a rich history. Some sources say it was home to the oldest settlement in Romania. Dating all the way back to 6,500 BCE, trees themselves are pretty mysterious. They grow in creepy spirals or have some unexpected zigzag patterns. Even though some scientists have come there to explore this phenomenon, they couldn't find the answer to why they're like this. It seems as if trees are twisting their limbs so they can reach out and grab you when you're not looking. And that's what's interesting. Each of these twisted trees spirals in a clockwise direction. But legends say lots of inexplicable things have happened in a specific part of the forest where you can't find trees or any other types of vegetation. It's a perfect circle called The Clearing. The perfect name for a horror movie inspired by all these stories. The soil in this area with no vegetation has been tested and no one has found any weird stuff or anomalies that could potentially stop plants from growing there. Some locals believe the forest has positive energy, which is why it's good to make a wish there. But many more people let their imagination run wild, telling stories about paranormal activities happening there, like mysterious spheres popping out in the middle of the forest or extraterrestrial lights. Either way, you and your castle can step aside, Dracula, because you're not the only scary story from Transylvania. Here's another reason you won't be able to sleep well tonight. The Isla de la Munecas, or the Island of the Dolls. In the middle of the eerie and murky waters of canals near Mexico City, there's a small island. It may look charming at first, until you realize it's home to hundreds of dolls hanging from the trees and scattered throughout the overgrown vegetation. These dolls are old and decaying. They've lost their color over time, and their once cheerful faces are now twisted into expressions of despair and horror. There is a sad story behind this disturbing place. It says the island used to be home to a reclusive man who left his family more than 50 years ago to live alone on the island. He started obsessively collecting dolls that were lost in the canal. The story says he even traded products he grew to locals to get more dolls. The man didn't clean these dolls nor show any interest in fixing them. He would just decorate his island with them regardless of the state in which he found them. Even those that looked good ended up ruined due to winds and rain. They weren't just outside. His cabin was full of these scary dolls too. Many people were terrified of this place, claiming it was cursed but others believed the dolls safeguarded the island. Moving to the suburbs of North London, where you can find the mysterious Highgate Cemetery. It's definitely not a typical resting place for the dearly departed. This cemetery has so many peculiar graves, including those of Karl Marx and Douglas Adams. But that's not what draws visitors to its gates. 
people come there because of the legends claiming that this place is haunted by all sorts of spooky creatures, including vampires. Yup, stories about shadowy figures hovering over graves with glowing red eyes and sharp fangs never get boring. But this place wasn't always this creepy. It was established in the middle of the 19th century, once neglected and overgrown with crumbling monuments and vegetation that seemed to swallow up graves. But these legends became popular along with the place itself in the 1970s, after the cemetery had appeared in several horror movies. Some visitors there are even self-proclaimed vampire hunters. There's this peaceful and charming village called Pluckley, just a short drive away from London. At least that's what it seems at first sight. People whisper Pluckley could be the most haunted village in England. As you go through its winding streets, you'll come across many spots legends say are haunted. Many of them are connected to the Daring family, which held the title of Lords of the Manor for over four centuries. What gives the sense of old times is the round-topped windows on many buildings. Legend has it, hundreds of years ago, Lord Daring escaped when his enemies captured him. He jumped through one of these windows head first. In commemoration of this pretty daring act, every window in the manor house and the village was made in the same style. Even though the manor house burned down in 1951, the legacy of Lord Daring's escape lives on in the charming village of Pluckley. Some say Pluckley is surrounded by the so-called Screaming Wood. There are many legends about paranormal events that have occurred there. There are nice walking trails in this wood, but to be honest, I'd only be brave enough to hit them during the day. And how about the Crooked Forest? It's in Poland, and it consists of 400 pine trees whose trunks take a sharp 90-degree turn and then become weirdly curved, like the letter J. Someone planted them in the early 1930s, but it's still not completely clear how all these trees got the same curve. One scientist said this looked like a typical response to gravity. Plants have a special mechanism that allows them to reorient themselves when the stem is horizontal to gravity. So, these trees may have been grown this way for making boats or furniture. Of course, human imagination goes way beyond science, so many tried to explain the existence of these trees with stories of spirits that possess these trees or mysterious creatures from space that made them this way. Okay, I'm on. Let me just grab my popcorn. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. The dark days are mysterious natural phenomena that have occurred only a few times in the history of humankind. We can write them off as eclipses or just some weather events, but in reality, they're very creepy and we have no idea why they happen. So. What are these dark days anyway? What's so strange about them? Let's try to find out. The sun is off. What are we going to do? That's what the residents of Yamal, Siberia asked meteorologists on September 18, 1938. In the morning, instead of going to work, they all gathered at the weather station. They were waiting for answers. All because on that day, they observed something inexplicable an eclipse which they later nicknamed the Black Day. And neither astronomers nor meteorologists can explain what happened back then. Here's how one of them described this event. At 8.30 a.m., we noted a decrease in light 
At the same time, the color of the clouds began to acquire a yellowish-brown, sometimes red-brown hue. By 9 a.m., the lighting had changed dramatically. It was as if you were looking at the world through a dark light filter. The brown tones of the clouds intensified. By 10.30 a.m., the sky and Earth didn't differ from each other in lighting and color. Everything seemed homogenous, black, absolutely devoid of light. Pretty creepy, right? And that's not all. The city was also plunged into complete radio silence. Meteorologists couldn't even contact the authorities, and local residents were unable to set up any stations. Everyone was in the dark, both literally and figuratively. Meteorologists decided to try and launch several flares. The flares soared into the air towards the heavy dark clouds hanging over the city and disappeared. The clouds were so dense that the flares were completely invisible. At the same time, the weather was perfectly fine. Everything was quiet. And this black silence lasted for about an hour. After that, the black day ended as unexpectedly as it began. Even more baffling, those strange clouds left literally no trace. No rain, no dust, nothing. After that event, researchers found out that the black day had spread for 125 to 155 miles around. They also learned that the dark band was moving from west to east. After passing through the southern part of the Yamal Peninsula, it headed on for a while and then disappeared completely. Yamal isn't the only place where this phenomenon occurred. In fact, similar eclipses have been happening in different parts of Earth for many years. For example, in New England, on May 19, 1780, people there witnessed an event that was later called New England's Dark Day. But it lasted not one day, but several. A few days before this event, the sky turned yellow. And on May 19th, in broad daylight, it suddenly turned black. Here's what one of the witnesses, Joseph Plum Martin, later told the press. It was very dark. People had to light candles in their houses to carry on with their usual business. The night was as uncommonly dark as the day was. The smell of soot reigned in the air. Nearby rivers were covered with a thin layer of ash. When the real night came, people noticed through the clouds that the moon had turned dark red. Only a couple of days later, people were finally able to see stars through the veil of clouds. And then everything suddenly returned to normal. No one had any idea what had happened. 22 years later, on June 2, 1802, a schooner named El Dorado sailed across the Pacific Ocean. Suddenly, they were overtaken by complete darkness. There was no storm, and the ocean was completely calm. But the whole sky was covered with black clouds. These clouds dissipated after half an hour and left no trace. And again, 74 years later, one of the dark waves happened in Wisconsin on March 19, 1886. It was 3 p.m., and this time, the wave was very short. It lasted only 5 to 10 minutes. A sudden night fell on the city. Frightened horses were neighing and terrified people were running around trying to find a place to hide. When everything calmed down, local newspapers reported that the wave passed from west to east. There was no solar eclipse, no winds or hurricanes, nothing that could cause the darkness over the city. And finally, once again, it happened on December 2nd, 1904 in Memphis. Or rather, that's what rumors claim, 
Since there's no scientific evidence of this event, it was clear and cold dawn over Bluff City. People were doing their usual Friday morning chores. Then, around 9 in the morning, without any warning, the sun suddenly disappeared from the sky. It took only a minute for the bright sunny day to turn into pitch darkness. People interrupted their work, and children in schools were completely terrified. And just like in previous cases, the weather was perfectly calm. It lasted for about half an hour and then suddenly ended. A little later, following a mysterious eclipse, a ferocious storm hit the city. So, what's going on? All these strange cases can surely be explained scientifically, right? Well, actually, scientists don't have a definite answer. All these events are very similar, but we don't have a single explanation that could cover them all. Let's take a look at some theories. The first thought that comes to mind, it's probably a partial or total eclipse. But no, this is not the case. There were no eclipses on those days. And even if we consider this theory, before any eclipse, the sky darkens gradually. Eclipses themselves only last a couple of minutes, certainly not a few hours or even days. Also, unlike eclipses, these events were local to specific cities. Well, maybe it's some other astronomical event. Some scientists believe that during the event on Yamal, a band of cosmic dust touched Earth. But later, they found out that no astronomical bodies approached the planet that day. All right, any other ideas? Forest fires could be the reason. When a large area of forest is burning at the same time, a column of air can rise to great heights, like three to four miles. These air flows carry ash and other burnt stuff to different places. And since all these things are so high in the sky, they simply freeze there and turn into something resembling black clouds. That was probably the case for New England. At that time, a wave of forest fires broke out in Canada. They could easily spread through the north of the US. Also, just look at this description. Yellowed sky, the smell of soot, ash on the water. Everything sounds logical, but this theory of fires only works for the event in New England. What about the other cases? Where would you find a forest fire in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, for example? All right, moving on. Scientists tried to explain the story from Memphis by saying it could be a hurricane, but the black cloud swept through the city before the storm, not during or after it. And it wasn't some kind of typical storm cloud. It was full-fledged night darkness. So what's really going on? Now, meteorologists call this phenomenon a local decrease in the transparency of the atmosphere. Unlike solar eclipses, this darkness is denser. It also covers only a small area. The transparency of the atmosphere is its ability to let through radiation and light. It's basically, how well can I see distant objects? Everything can get dark and blurry, for example, because of the dust in the air, volcanic eruptions, fogs, and so on. So, according to this theory, dark days are just an extreme drop in the transparency of the atmosphere. But it's still strange. If that's the case, shouldn't everything have been covered with thick fog or something like that? Yeah, it was very dark. But when people lit the lamps, the visibility was pretty good. Nothing blocked the view except the black clouds that covered the sun. In other words, this phenomenon is very hard to explain. As far as we know, it happened only five to six times in the history of humankind. 
If there were other cases, they weren't documented. This phenomenon is impossible to predict and no one knows how it worked, as well as where and when it will happen next time. And although there are many hypotheses, none of them can be verified. Maybe if these events happen again in the future, we'll be able to study them better. But unfortunately, at the moment, the dark days remain a mystery. Do you have any theories or ideas on this stuff? If so, write them down in the comments. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Can you tell me what date it is today? Piece of cake. You just look at your smartphone and voila, you immediately know the day, month, and year. But was it always this easy to tell the date? Did the ancient people even have the concept of a year that lasts 365 days? Yes and no. Mayan calendars had cycles. That's close to what we call a year. But the Mayan cycle was much longer, 819 days. And this is where the mystery begins. 819 days compared to what? When does this calendar begin and when does it end? Scientists were asking themselves this question for decades. They discovered and deciphered the Mayan calendar during the 1940s. Recently, two American scientists, John Linden and Victoria Bricker, came forward with a solution. So, what did they do differently from their predecessors? The duo deciphered the code by broadening their thinking. They expanded the calendar from 819 days to full 45 years. That's 20 times longer than the original cycle. And a pattern started to emerge. This was a major breakthrough because the Maya told time in a complicated way. You can forget about the easy-to-read Arabic numerals we have today. These ancient people used glyphs. These are tiny images that represent characters. Something like the icons on your desktop or universal symbols. When you see a little dot with three curved lines above it, you know there is a Wi-Fi network available. The Mayan calendar used glyphs that represented animals or natural phenomena. For example, there were symbols for a jaguar and an eagle. Each glyph marked one day. Each cycle is repeated four times, 8 and 19 x 4. Let's call these four cycles blocks. The Mayas colored each block differently. Scientists thought these colors corresponded to the four cardinal directions. Red was east, white, north. West was black and finally, yellow marked south. But then the 1980s came. Yeah, this was a weird decade. The calculations were all wrong. Researchers determined that the colors were associated with the position of the sun in the sky. It turned out that the color yellow represented the highest point of the sun, which is called a zenith. White was the lowest point, called the nadir. It seems that the calendar showed just how good the ancient Mayas were at astronomy. This is most evident at Chichen Itza. This principal Mayan city is located on the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico. There stands an impressive step pyramid. It is dedicated to the feathered serpent deity and its alignment is perfect. Something marvelous happens here twice a year, during the equinoxes, March and September. These are the times when the sun shines directly over the equator. On these two dates, the day and night last the same. At the site of the pyramid, sunlight first illuminates the sculpture of the serpent head at the base of the structure. Then it makes its way up the 91 steps. This creates the illusion that a snake is slithering down the pyramid. Even today, people gather to witness the site. And it must have been more impressive when the Mayas completed the structure 1050-1300 CE. Do you know what a synodic period is? Neither do I. But Mayan astronomers did. A synodic period is the time that passes before a stellar body does a full lap. For example, 
This is the period between two full moons. When you look from Earth, this period lasts roughly 30 days. And the Mayas were looking at the skies non-stop. They carefully noted the synodic periods of all planets. From Venus to Saturn, these ancient astronomers kept records of nearly all celestial bodies. But what does this have to do with their calendar? The American researchers' calculations revealed the link. Let's take the planet closest to the Sun as an example, Mercury. Its synodic period is 117 days. Multiply that by 7 and you get which number? Exactly 8 to 19, 117 x7 equals sign 819. Coincidence? Definitely not. Because synodic periods of other planets also neatly match the magical figure, 819. But this is not visible from a single Mayan cycle. Scientists had to expand it several times to discover the pattern. There is a reason why no one could decipher the code for so long. They were focused on a single planet. The trick was to add the Mayan calculation for all the planets. Researchers just needed to see the bigger picture. This brings us to the year 2012. Can you remember that some people thought that the world would end on December 21st? That turned out to be a bust. We are alive and well now. But what started this false rumor? The Mayan calendar, of course. You see, these ancient people based their calendar on long periods of all the planets. That included a lot of complicated math and a lot of multiplying. This 2012 was simply the time when their cycle ended. It is known as the long count. This period is the same as our year. For the Mayas, 2012 was something like the 31st of December for us. Just an end of a cycle in which they measured time, so there was no need to panic. Those New Year's Eve parties might be a bit wild, but the world doesn't end on January 1st. The Mayas stretched more than their calendar. Rubber was the name of the game. Yes, you've heard it correctly. These ancient people were making different grades of rubber 3,000 years before one famous American did, Charles Goodyear. They would extract natural latex from the rubber tree. This is a milky substance that can be turned into rubber. And they weren't the only ones. Scientists found evidence that their neighbors, the Aztecs and the Olmecs, did the same. But what did they do with rubber? They didn't need car tires, definitely. But it's cool to have a nice pair of sandals for the beach. The Spanish wrote about rubber sole footwear that natives wore. Sadly, scientists still haven't found them. That would be a big step for archaeology. So the Maya were playful with rubber, literally. Researchers guessed that they produced balls from latex. These were bouncy and ranged in size from a softball to a soccer ball. A typical Mayan ball game, pits, involved two hoops. You must be thinking basketball, but not quite. The hoops were set on walls, 23 feet high. Compare that to the NBA standard of 10 feet. And the hoop was the other way around. There is also a sweet side to the story of the Mayas. These ancient people enjoyed chocolate. In fact, the modern word chocolate probably comes from their language, socolatl. This meant bitter water. Okay, you get the bitter part, but why water? The Mayas didn't produce chocolate in the form we know it today. They didn't make bars of chocolate. They drank it. Smashed cocoa beans made for excellent drinks. The Mayas perfected the mixture over time and even added spices. Anyone up for a fiery chocolate drink with stew peppers and cornmeal? Who knows, maybe this beverage actually tasted well. Cocoa beans were sacred and used as a currency. Researchers believe all social classes got to enjoy it. Free chocolate for all sounds nice even today. But where did the Mayas get clean water for their cocoa drinks? From the oldest known filtration system in the Western Hemisphere. It was based on zeolite. 
These are minerals that contain aluminum and silicone compounds. And guess what? Modern air and water purifiers still use this material. Mayan tech wins yet again. Back in Europe, Roger Bacon developed a sand filtration system in 1627, some 1,800 years after the Mayas. But what about regions without rivers, lakes, or springs? Mayan engineers had it all figured out. Rainwater. They would carve out large reservoirs in the limestone bedrock. Then, they would coat these underground caves with a layer of a watertight material. The final step was to make small channels that collected water from the hills above. Scientists estimated that just one of these reservoirs could hold on average 10,000 gallons of rainwater. Enough to fill 55 modern hot tubs. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. The legend of the Black Knight satellite tells us that a spaceship of extraterrestrial origin has been orbiting Earth for many, many years. Sounds crazy, right? But over the years, the supporters of the theory have gathered a lot of evidence to prove it. So let's look at it and judge for ourselves. 1899. Famous scientist Nikola Tesla built a giant tower in his laboratory in Colorado Springs. This tower was supposed to allow him to study atmospheric electricity and wireless energy. Everything went fine until one day he discovered something unexpected. The tower began to catch a signal that seemed to be artificial. At first Tesla thought that the signal was coming from somewhere in the atmosphere. But it turned out that it had been coming from an even greater height, from outer space. Tesla decided that this signal was sent by some extraterrestrial life. However, the scientific community ignored his theory. Although they respected Tesla's genius, they still considered him to be a weirdo. But a few years later, Tesla's reports were confirmed. The inventor of the wireless radio, Guglielmo Marcani, intercepted similar signals. Then in 1927, Norwegian radio engineer Georgen Holz noticed something unusual. When he sent signals at a certain wavelength, they were sent back to him a few seconds later. At first, he thought it could be an ordinary radio echo. It's not uncommon for short radio waves to bounce between Earth and the stratosphere. This phenomenon is called propagation. But usually it happens very quickly, in about one-seventh of a second after the original transmission. However, the signals that Holzer received took about 15 seconds to get back. They also didn't match the radio echo people were used to. The engineer wasn't the only one to witness this phenomenon. Many radio enthusiasts discovered and confirmed these signals. But no one found any explanation. So what was it? Could Tesla have been right this whole time? Let's unpack this. First of all, the signals did exist, and they've been documented by many people. However, Tesla and Macron's signals and Hull's echoes are completely different things. In reality, Tesla and Macron cut signals coming from pulsars. Pulsars are rapidly rotating neutron stars. Those get born when stars greater than our sun finish their life cycle. After that, they become neutron stars and receive such a strong impulse that they begin to rotate at an insane speed. At the same time, the radio waves pulsars emit reach very far, as far as our planet. Pulsars were discovered only in 1968, so it's not surprising that Tesla and Macron couldn't explain the data they had received. But what about Jordan Hulls? 
What he discovered is now known as LDEs, or long-delayed echoes. It's a more complicated concept because, to be honest, these echoes still remain a mystery. Scientists suggest that LDEs may be caused by something in Earth's atmosphere, or they might be reflected from the Sun's plasma clouds or even from the Moon. Unfortunately, we don't know the truth yet. The next incident took place in 1960. The New York Times published an article which said an unidentified silent satellite has been discovered circling Earth in a near-polar orbit by United States tracking stations. The identity and origin of the mysterious satellite, which has been dubbed the Dark Satellite, are unknown despite nearly two weeks of tracking. Many people believe that this must be the famous Black Knight satellite. However, later scientists confirmed that it was actually the remnants of a regular satellite that had gone astray. It malfunctioned and the thrusters sent it in the wrong direction, they claimed. Anyway, this old story led to renewed interest in the Black Knight satellite. Astronomers all over the world started claiming to have observed it. Almost any strange celestial object could become the famous dark spaceship. But up to this point, all the photos and data about the Black Knight satellite have come from observatories on Earth. To prove or disprove its existence, people needed some witnesses in orbit. Gordon Cooper was a pilot and one of the first astronauts in human history. In 1963, he took part in the longest American space mission at that time, Mercury Atlas 9. During the flight, he discovered some strange green object, possibly of extraterrestrial origin, in front of his module. He then told his crew on Earth about that. NBC News picked up on the news and tried to interview Cooper about it. But strangely, neither NASA's mission transcripts nor Cooper seemed to give much importance to this fact, as if that didn't happen at all. Later, the official NASA's explanation was there was an electronic malfunction on Cooper's craft. It led to increased levels of carbon dioxide, which in turn caused Cooper to hallucinate. Cooper agreed with this version. Maybe it's just a curious coincidence that when he retired, he became interested in searching for extraterrestrial life. But even if we assume that all this is true and there is some mysterious spaceship in Earth's orbit, what do they want from us? Why would they be watching us? In 1973, Duncan Alasdair Lunan, a Scottish researcher, decided to investigate this. He gathered all the data on LDEs collected by Norwegian scientists and began to study it. Suddenly, he noticed some deviations that could hide a code. He arranged the data into a graph, where one axis meant the delay in time between the echoes, and the other the position of the echo in the sequence. It turned out to be a collection of dots, which looked like some sort of space map, namely the map of the constellation Bortis. Lunan began to analyze the echoes recorded by French astronomers in 1929. Again, he got the same constellation, but one of the stars was in a slightly different place. Lunan then thought, what if it's actually a star map from the past? After rewinding the time, Lunan finally got the whole picture. He discovered that this was how the constellation looked 13,000 years ago, which probably meant that they could have been watching us for thousands of years. In 1973, Lunan gave an interview to the British magazine Spaceflight. He said that he had deciphered the radio message hidden in the LDEs. Here is what it said. Start here. Our home is Ypsilon Buddhist, which is a double star. We live on the sixth planet of seven coming from the Sun, which is the larger of the two. Our sixth planet has one moon. 
Our fourth planet has three. Our first and third planets each have one. Our probe is in the position of Arcturus, known in our maps. Ugh, goosebumps. But even though these reports were published in the New York Times, Time and other well-known magazines, no one really took this topic seriously. Unfortunately, Luna's theory wasn't really backed up by any evidence. Later, he withdrew it himself, saying that he had made obvious mistakes and that his methods had been unscientific. According to him, he had just been making guesses about what these signals might mean. And finally, the last part of our story. This photo. On the 4th of December 1998, the Endeavour spacecraft embarked on the STS-88 mission. This was the first mission to the International Space Station. And then, on the 11th of December, NASA took and published a series of images where you could clearly see an unusual object in Earth's orbit. These photos were immediately picked up by the public. Everyone thought it was the Black Knight satellite, which had been discussed for years. Had it finally been found after 100 years of speculation? But as usual, the truth turned out to be much more boring. During the mission, one of the astronauts was installing a thermal cover, but the coating was poorly fixed. It broke off and flew away. The photos were taken just to document this event. The Black Knight is a very interesting legend. You can dig into it for hours, looking for new information and evidence, and then watch it getting debunked. This story is a pile-up of many completely unrelated stories, reports, photos of real satellites, and so on. All this was mixed into one incoherent, illogical urban legend. Illogical, but very fascinating indeed. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. The theory of parallel worlds has been discussed in the scientific community for a very long time. Unfortunately, we're not developed enough yet to prove or disprove it. But it's still an interesting theory. And that's why we have a lot of unusual urban legends about the guests from a parallel reality, according to many. Let's check out a few of them. A man from a non-existent country. This story took place in 1851 in a small German village, Frankfurt an der Oder. A lost man came out to the local villagers asking for help. The man introduced himself as Jopar Voren. He spoke very poor German and had a very strong accent. The man himself claimed that he speaks Laxar and Abram languages that don't actually exist on our Earth. He claimed to be from Laxaria, a country on the mainland called Sacria, separated from Europe by a huge ocean. However, none of these places existed on the Earth's map. People sent Yopar to the local authorities. He talked to a psychiatrist, but the doctor concluded that the man was totally sane. An investigation by the local police also revealed nothing suspicious about him. Jopar Voren claimed that the purpose of his visit to Europe was to find his long-lost brother. He survived a shipwreck and found himself near the village. They showed him a map of the world and a globe and asked him to indicate the place where he crashed, but he didn't recognize anything familiar. He seemed to have extensive knowledge about his homeworld. Jopar named five main continents on it. Sakria, Aflar, Ostar, Auslar, and Uplar. 
his story was considered plausible. Scientists from Frankfurt decided to send the man to Berlin for further research. However, during the trip, he had something like a seizure. The man suddenly jumped out of the carriage and disappeared into the surrounding forest. Despite a long and thorough search, no traces of Jopar were found. He seemed to have disappeared as mysteriously as he had appeared. Inspector Lebouf, who was assigned to escort him to Berlin, thought this man could be a being from another world and that he had returned from where he had come from. Lady on Highway 167 This incident happened on October 20th, 1969. It was first reported in 1988 in the magazine Strange. The article tells about two men, L.C. and his business partner, Charlie. The names are fictitious. One afternoon, L.C. and Charlie were driving along Highway 167 in southwest Louisiana. Discussing work, they drove toward the oil center of Lafayette. The highway was empty at first, but then the men noticed a very old and very slow car ahead. The men started discussing this mysterious car. Such cars hadn't been produced for several decades, but this one looked quite new. The men thought it was thanks to the owner's care and admired it. They slowed down to get a better look at the car. L.C. noticed a bright orange sign on it that said 1940. They saw a driver. It was a young woman in old-fashioned clothes, a hat with a long feather and a fur coat, even though it was warm outside. There was a child next to her, also dressed in a warm coat and a hat. L.C. and Charlie wanted to talk to her, but then they noticed the expression on her face. The woman was looking around in panic, almost on the verge of crying. L.C. called out to her and asked if she needed help. She nodded, and he gestured for her to park on the side of the road. But when the men also parked, they suddenly noticed that the woman's car had disappeared. They looked around the highway in shock. She couldn't have gone somewhere far so fast, but the car was nowhere to be found. After some time, another man drove up to L.C. and Charlie. He saw everything that happened and claimed that the car had simply disappeared. The men talked about the incident for several hours. When they reached the city, they contacted the police. However, the police couldn't help them in any way. Apart from their words, there was no confirmation of the existence of the car. The case was discussed for a while in local newspapers and then was forgotten. The Gadianton Canyon Incident this incident occurred in May of 1972 in southeastern Utah near the Modena Railroad Crossing on the edge of the Escalante Desert. Jenna North was driving her father's 1971 Chevrolet Nova. Her friend, Carol Abbott, was in the passenger seat. In the back seat, there were two other girls, Lisa Rockford and Bethany Gordon. It was after 10 p.m. when the girls crossed the Utah-Nevada state line. They wanted to get back to campus before their housekeeper, Mrs. Mortensen, locked the dorm doors. This stretch of Highway 56 in Utah is pretty deserted. There's nothing there but sand and a few plants. The girls were very happy when they finally noticed the Union Pacific Railroad crossing in Modena. But right behind the railing, Jenna noticed two highways. One went into the desert, and the other to Gadianton Canyon. The girls decided to take the road to the canyon. They thought it would be a shortcut to campus. The other girls were chatting with each other when Jenna noticed that they were no longer driving on asphalt. 
but on white cement. Watch out, suddenly shouted one of the girls. The road ended abruptly at a high rock wall. It was a dead end. They had to go back the same way they came here. And while Jenna's friends were complaining that now they would have to sleep in the car, Jenna saw that the landscape had changed dramatically. They weren't in the desert anymore. Instead, the canyon turned into an open area with wheat fields, pine thickets, and a small lake ahead. A full moon was shining in the sky, which was strange because it shouldn't have been there that night. The girls had no idea where they were, so they just drove to the light ahead. It was some building that they thought was a diner or restaurant. The girls saw a bright neon sign, but none of them could read what was written on it. These symbols were unlike any language they knew. Suddenly, several people came out of the building. They seemed shocked and frightened by Jenna's Chevrolet. They waved their hands and shouted something, but the girls didn't understand them. Lisa decided to ask the men for directions. She stuck her head out of the window and immediately let out a terrifying scream. Get out of here, she shouted to Jenna. The Chevrolet sped away from the building. Bright headlights illuminated their car from behind. They were being chased by a few vehicles. These vehicles were egg-shaped, had three wheels, and made a buzzing sound. The road ahead led back to the canyon. Jenna didn't have time to slow down and crashed right into it. The vehicles had disappeared together with an unfamiliar landscape. The girls were back in the desert again. Fortunately, none of them were hurt, physically. But Lisa was in a state of shock. She was saying again and again, they weren't human. The girls had to help her walk. An hour later, they were able to stop a Utah Highway Patrol car. They told the police their story. The details of the report compiled by the police officer were complicated and confusing. During the investigation, the police couldn't figure out from the tire tracks exactly where the car went astray. The tracks ended very abruptly, as if the Chevrolet had suddenly disappeared. The police couldn't explain how the car could have driven two miles without leaving any traces, especially on such solid ground. There are still disputes about this story, but in the end, all versions and explanations of what happened are just guesses. Perhaps we'll never find out the truth. These were the urban legends about interdimensional traveling. Of course, there's no proof that any of these stories are real. Often the truth turns out to be very mundane. For example, the famous man from Taurid, who people also called a guest from another reality, turned out to be a simple fraudster named John Allen Kuchar Zegrus. But even so, these stories are still very interesting. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. On August 2, 1996, huge, mysterious patterns appeared on an agricultural field in Chiseldon, England. No one knew what kinds of symbols those were and who left them. As soon as the local news reported this, people immediately began to make their guesses. The most popular version was a message from a civilization living on another planet. The first crop circles appeared in the 70s in many areas across the US and England. Some compared these symbols to the writings of the ancient Maya. Others thought those were messages about the approaching apocalypse. But few doubted that their authors were from another civilization. 
But that geometric pattern in Chiseldon was different from all the others because of an event that happened eight years later. In 2004, a man from New Mexico found a strange stone 11 miles from Roswell. The rock had the same pattern on it as the crop circle in Chiseldon. It's worth noting that Roswell became a famous place after, according to rumors and legends, a spaceship from another planet crashed there. Therefore, when the farmer found the stone and posted its photo on the internet, many people thought it was part of that spaceship. The stone was perfectly smooth, and the pattern was applied with incredible precision. But the most remarkable thing was its magnetic properties. It rotated counterclockwise when people put the magnet next to its northern part. When they left the magnet near the southern side, the stone turned in the other direction. Computed tomography and x-rays showed that there hadn't been any elements inside the stone that could cause rotation. It was just a smooth piece of rock. But was the Roswell rock really part of a spaceship? To answer this question, we need to move to England, the year 1976. An artist named Doug Bauer met his friend Dave Corley and invited him to create an impressive performance. At that time, people only learned about strange patterns in the fields from some books and records. And of course, none of these cases had been confirmed. The two friends understood that all this was nothing more than myths. Therefore, they decided to draw a big pattern in a wheat field in Wiltshire. Now, they didn't expect this drawing to become so popular. Many newspapers began to write about mysterious circles. Hundreds of reporters filmed it on their cameras, and people watching TV were shocked. From that moment on, crop circles became a cultural phenomenon. People mixed facts with fiction and created more and more unbelievable legends. Someone said that they had seen mysterious lights in the sky above the circles. In any case, those two friends continued to draw patterns and revealed their secret only in 2009. They also created the mysterious drawing in Chiseldon. But that Roswell rock wasn't their job. Anyway, they said that the stone was also a fake. Other artists could draw the same pattern on the rock using stone-cutting equipment. One of the most mysterious books in the world is the Voynich Manuscript. Nobody knows who its author was, but they wrote it in the 15th century. No one can understand the contents of this manuscript, consisting of 240 pages for more than 500 years. Now, just imagine all the words were written in hand in an unknown language. Almost every page is decorated with strange images of female figures and weird unknown plants. The book was first discovered in 1912 and immediately became a cultural phenomenon. Many scientists, polyglots, and historians have tried to decipher the language and understand its meaning. They put it on the internet so everyone could try to solve the mystery. And it seems that Nicholas Gibbs, a historian and writer, managed to do this. He spent many years studying medieval Latin language and literature. Gibbs noticed the manuscript contained Latin abbreviations often used in medieval medical papers and reference books. Gibbs even found out that the book was a plagiarism of other older medical reference works. He compared the Voynich manuscript with other Latin books and found many similar words. Gibbs claimed that the manuscript was dedicated to women's health, and the mysterious flowers were real herbs and plants. But it wasn't that simple. Nicholas Gibbs was one of many who put forward the theory. Many scientists recognized his version as banal and unconvincing. 
Other decoders claimed that some secret code was used in the manuscript. Some were sure it was written by Dominican nuns. Others described it as a reference book on astrology and herbs. Anyway, you can find scans of the manuscript in high resolution on the internet and try to crack the code yourself. Imagine that you're walking around New York and entering a dark, deserted alley. Then you see some canvas with a beautiful picture on it lying in a trash can. You don't really understand what exactly is depicted there, but you still feel some power of art emanating from it. You take the painting home and hang it on the wall. It's been hanging there almost four years. Then you publish a photo with the painting on the website with antiques and discover that this picture is a missing masterpiece worth $1 million. This is a real story that happened to a New Yorker in 2003. Famous Mexican artist Rufino Tamayo painted this picture called Three People in 1970. One collector bought it as a gift for his wife. But in 1989, someone stole the work while they were moving to a new house. It was possible that the thief didn't appreciate this piece of art or couldn't find a buyer, so they threw it into the nearest trash can. The woman who found it returned the work to the owner and received a $15,000 reward. Expensive paintings often end up in trash cans. Van Gogh gave his works to various people, but they didn't take them seriously at that time. When these paintings were found many years later, they were estimated at tens of millions of dollars. For example, the artist gave his doctor his portrait. The doctor was horrified by the painting. Perhaps he didn't like the red shade of the hair. He gave the portrait to his mother, and she found a use for it. She covered the hole in her chicken coop with the picture. For more than 10 years, chickens had been running under the work of art. Then another artist found the painting. He paid the doctor pennies for it. Now, it's estimated at $50 million. A similar case with a discarded work of art occurred in Italy. A gardener who worked at the Ricciotti Gallery of Modern Art was removing ivy from the building's walls and found a rusty metal door in the thicket. He opened it and got into a dark room. There was a garbage bag lying there. The gardener wanted to throw it in the trash but decided to look inside first. And he found the lost work of famous artist Gustav Klimt. During the renovation of the gallery in 1997, someone stole the painting, Portrait of a Lady. It turned out that the thief had never taken it out of the building. Its value is estimated at $66 million. In 1901, collectors of sea sponges discovered a mysterious chest in the sea near Greece. There was a strange object inside similar to a mechanical watch and the size of a shoebox. The finding attracted the attention of archaeologists. They quickly established that this item was created in ancient Greece about 2,200 years ago. They called it the Antikythera mechanism. Now it's in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. Scientists have found out that this object is only 82 fragments, one-third of the original mechanism. It's still unknown who created it and how it works. But experts think it was a mechanical computer with bronze gears and other parts. People use it for astronomical calculations. The device could track the movements of the Sun, the Moon, and five planets of the solar system. Experts are still trying to figure out all the properties of this machine. It's considered to be the oldest computer on Earth. It proves that the level of technology 2,000 years ago was much higher than we could imagine.
That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. You know, there are many doors all around the world that have no keys. Maybe you can guess how to open them. The first destination is... Okay, read this, and good luck to you. It's a temple in India. The temple's name comes from this other really long word, which can be translated as the one emerging from the lotus. This temple is one of India's most popular and sacred places. It's one of 108 temples of this word. It dates way back. It was mentioned in Tamil literature in the 6th century. Flash forward to our time. In 2011, the Indian Supreme Court decided to document the valuables of the temple because they had been informed that the place might have been misused. To do so, they had to open the doors that had been closed for centuries. The committee went to the temple and discovered six huge secret vaults that held unbelievable treasures. After the chamber doors opened, they found at least $22 billion worth of golden idols, necklaces, and coins. The officials also discovered ceremonial costumes and gold coconut shells with jewels. Plus, they saw large diamonds. Not our understanding of large, though. Some of these precious stones were as large as 110 carats. To put it in perspective, a small solid gold statue from the collection could be worth around $30 million. After this fairy tale-ish treasure had been discovered, the temple got equipped with metal detectors, cameras, and other safety precautions before the first visitors started to arrive. Now, there are a lot of security guards at the temple. But are they protecting the treasure, or is there something more mysterious hiding behind its doors? The temple has six chambers, and the valuables are kept there. These rooms are named Chambers A through F. The expedition committee opened five of these vaults with significant effort. But the most bizarre thing is that, despite all the efforts involving existing tech, the mysterious Chamber B still wouldn't open. On the side of the door, two carved cobras are welcoming you. The door works as a gate. You can easily see it with the unaided eye, just like the doors leading to other chambers. Surprise! Experts discover two more doors behind the first one. The second door is wooden, and the last one is made of iron. Strangely, the last door was sealed. It also doesn't have any means of entry, no bolts, handles, latches, or anything else. To this day, no one knows what's inside Chamber B. Believers say that opening the door against its will can release into the world unnameable things. Others say that Chamber B may hide a tunnel. It might not be related to the reasons above, but the High Court of India warned against opening the doors of Chamber B. Now, in 2010, David Crespi, a French engineer, visited Machu Picchu. He discovered a strange door in one of the main buildings. The door was in a narrow path neither tourists nor archaeologists used very often. David believed that the place was an entrance the Incas had sealed for some reason. He contacted archaeologists and authorities right away. They promised him to start investigating the area in the near future and let him know about his potential discovery. Well, months passed, but he didn't get any news no response to his emails and calls. In 2011, he found an article by Terry Jameen about Peru. David reached out to him in no time. He described his finding to Jameen. After that, Jameen and other archaeologists went to Machu Picchu to investigate the secret door. 
they concluded that this door was indeed an entrance sealed by the Incas. The researchers confirmed the existence of two entrances found behind the famous door. They also got the 3D representation of a staircase leading to the main room and another chamber. The analysis also revealed several cavities, among which there was a vast quadrangular room. Plus, geo-radars detected some metals. Those might be golden and silver objects. Jamin and his team thought this place was a chamber of pre-Hispanic times. They believed the door had been sealed by the Incas to hide something important. Maybe an enormous treasure, or something no less precious. Jamin also claimed that finding this chamber could lead to the discovery of a mausoleum. Jamin submitted an official request to the Peruvian authorities for permission to open the chambers. Yet, neither his application nor requests of other archaeologists have been approved so far. Authorities claim that opening this door could cause damage on the other sides of the archaeological site. Yet, the use of an endoscopic camera has confirmed the hypothesis that the stone blocks at the entrance are only there to close the passage. They are not there to support the internal structures of the building. The third mystery is in Giza, Egypt. Explorers uncovered two secret doors inside the Great Pyramid. There are two tunnels, each around 8 inches wide, that go from the north and south walls of the Queen's Chamber. But the tunnels are closed by stone blocks before they reach the outside of the pyramid. So, where are they leading to? No one really knows the true purpose of these tunnels. Some archaeologists think these doors might be hiding a yet undiscovered chamber. Egyptologist Zahi Hawass explained how these doors were first found. A robot designed for this expedition was sent inside the shafts of the Queen's Chamber to find out what was there. The research team attached a camera to the robot. The footage revealed that behind the stone door, there was another sealed door. The archaeologists were thrilled to see this door instead of just a dead end. The structure of the stone door blocks the other doors perfectly. Experts think it's an incredible bit of engineering. Now, it's not possible to reach the door because it's behind a huge stone block. But archaeologists are trying to find a way to get there without damaging other parts of the structure. These new discoveries have only raised more questions instead of answering the already existing ones. Secrets are still waiting to be revealed. Our final stop is the Taj Mahal, a monument to love. Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan made this memorial to honor the memory of his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal. The total number of doors in the Taj Mahal is so great, this video would be days long if we started talking about all the sealed rooms. Experts think that if someone opened these doors after they've been closed for so long, it released carbon monoxide. And when this gas meets the marble, it forms calcium carbonate. That's why this could lead to the appearance of cracks in the minarets of the Taj Mahal. Also, a legend says that if these doors get open, a dreadful curse will be unleashed from the mausoleum's underground chambers. And here's a bonus from Canada. The door of room 873. This is a room at the Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel, which opened in 1888. The story goes like this. Decades ago, someone committed a crime in this room. 
After the investigation, the hotel administration refurbished the room and rented it out to other travelers. But rumor has it, other guests who stayed in the room later also faced unpleasant situations. They reported hearing strange noises. The TV in the room kept flickering. It's guessed that the door of room 873 was sealed with bricks. Curious, curious guests who heard these mysterious stories wander along the corridor where the room used to be and knock on the walls to contact potential ghosts. Well, which of these secret doors would you like to open? That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. You've just reached your perfect spot on a deserted beach. It's so quiet here that you start to doze off. But as you open your eyes, you're shocked. Wait a minute. Is that an actual house that's just been washed up on the shore? It may sound like the beginning of a sci-fi novel, but not if you live near this beach in El Salvador. There's a mysteriously abandoned house there that looks as if it's just been washed ashore. How did this villa end up there? How long has it been here without anyone noticing it? This mysterious construction is 46 miles south of El Salvador's capital, San Salvador. Locals say the building used to be a hotel called Puerto Ventura. At the time it was built, its main attraction was the fact that it was really close to the sea. Unfortunately, the engineering behind it wasn't well planned out, all because locals didn't need any official permission to start the construction. The hotel was too close to the water and dangerously exposed to the elements. The Roman-style villa is now a mere 50 feet from the edge of the sea when the tide is low. It can only be accessed in the morning, because later, the tides fill the first floor with salt water. What's now left of the hotel looks like the ruins of a two-story house. The front part is very impressive, with Roman-type pillars. It also has wide windows on the second floor. You can still see parts of the iron structures and remains of what used to be the gateway to the second floor. There are some bleachers at the top of the building. They're sometimes used by tourists. More and more people are now browsing the area, taking photos, even though the building is obviously not safe for climbing. There's little information on how long it's been sitting in its current location, but some locals say it's been there for at least 20 years. It had remained a local secret for years, before it was discovered by a TikTok user in 2021. But that doesn't answer the question, how did the hotel end up in another location altogether? This is where things become a little fuzzy. While some locals say that the building was abandoned decades ago, others claim it was deserted after Hurricane Mitch hit the area back in 1998. Hurricane Mitch was one of the most dangerous weather phenomena to ever hit Central America. During the storm, the winds traveled at 178 miles per hour, and the hurricane itself lasted for about 15 hours. It was also the cause of a huge amount of rainfall, which resulted in floods and many dangerous landslides. Being built so close to the shoreline, the former hotel had little chance of surviving the extreme weather conditions. So, it must have been literally displaced. After sitting under the sun, you might start dreaming of some snowballs getting washed ashore. You know, to even out the temperature. I'm not kidding. This strange natural phenomenon did happen back in 2016. 
It resulted in about 11 miles of the coast of the Gulf of Ob in West Siberia getting covered with huge snowballs. Because of the low temperatures, small pieces of ice started to form in the water. Afterward, the wind and waves rolled them into giant snowballs. Some of them were the size of a tennis ball, but others were up to three feet wide. A 2004 Harley-Davidson night train motorcycle popped up ashore on a British Columbia beach back in 2012. It was neatly packed inside a shipping container. It took some time to do it, but the owner was eventually traced down. His name was Ikuyo Yokoyama, and he lost his motorcycle after a tsunami struck Japan on March 11, 2011. To get to its final destination, the Harley-Davidson traveled more than 4,000 miles. To celebrate its long journey, Yokoyama donated the bike to the Harley-Davidson Museum in Milwaukee. It's been on display there ever since, in case you want to visit. This strange phenomenon made it look as if someone spilled dish soap all over the beach. But it does happen pretty often in Queensland. Seafoam covers the shore there a couple of times each year. It mostly happens after a storm, when ocean waves move dissolved organic matter around. It's basically like a giant ice cream maker. After Cyclone Debbie back in March of 2017, some beaches actually needed to be closed because of huge amounts of white foam. The wind even brought some of that foam to the nearby towns, making locals believe it was snowing. Would you be surprised to see a 6 by 6 foot rusty metal die washed ashore on your local beach? Because back in 2017, people in Coeur d'Alene in Idaho sure were. It turned out to be an old storage tank. Someone decided to spice it up a bit by adding some white spots to make it look like a dye. In 1992, thousands of rubber duckies got stranded at sea after a large container ship that was transporting them was hit by a wave. As you can imagine, the ducks started popping up all over the world, in Hawaii, Alaska, South America, Australia, in Europe, and even in the Arctic. It's estimated that a couple hundred of those unlucky rubber ducks are still out there. Interestingly, they turned out to be very useful to scientists. Based on their movements, researchers can monitor the direction of water currents. If you happen to like dinosaurs, you'll be happy to know seawaters can also bring ashore some fossils. In 2018, a large dinosaur jawbone ended up on the coast of Lilstock Beach in Somerset, England. It used to belong to a dinosaur called Ichthyosaurus. Thanks to this finding, scientists were able to make an impressive discovery. Before, they thought the Ichthyosaurus could reach a maximum length of about 69 feet. But after they studied the jawbone, they ended up recalculating the creature's size. They concluded that the Ichthyosaurus could grow up to 85 feet. The Megalodon was the largest predator in our planet's history. It lived almost all over the globe, except near the poles. How do we know that? because megalodon teeth keep appearing on beaches every now and then. One staggering megalodon tooth, which was way over 20 inches long, was discovered in a river in Croatia. Since these creatures have been extinct for about 3 million years, their teeth are highly prized by fossil hunters. A giant Lego man that washed ashore is something I never thought I'd hear about. And it turns out it didn't happen just once. There were four of these giant Lego men in total, each around 8 feet tall. One was found in England and one in the Netherlands, while the other two popped up in Florida and California. It was surely not a coincidence, and after some research, 
people found out that a Dutch artist was behind this. Ego Leonard started this project as a personal statement campaign. A short film was even made about this, and it was called No Real Than You Are. This sentence was written on each of the four Lego men put to sea. A bundle of over 50 letters was washed ashore in New Jersey on a beach in Atlantic Highlands back in 2012. It happened shortly after Hurricane Sandy had struck the area. A 14-year-old boy found the letters and gave them to his mom. She was so touched by them that she decided to carefully dry and return them to their owner. The letters were the correspondence of two people named Dorothy and Lynn. They were dated between 1942 and 1948. The last was written a week before their wedding. With the help of an online genealogy site, the woman reached Dorothy and returned the letters to the 88-year-old woman who was living in a retirement home. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. You go for a hike in the steep mountains of Mammoth Lakes, California. The terrain is rugged and difficult. The icy snow makes it harder to walk. Halfway along the hike, you spot something out of the ordinary. From a distance, you spot scattered stuff lying on the rocky ground. You walk a little closer to have a clearer look and see what appears to be the remains of an airplane. It turns out that the debris belonged to record-breaking pilot Steve Fawcett. Authorities had been looking for him for almost a year. No one could find him and explain what caused his plane to crash. It seemed like such an easy flight for an experienced pilot. So what could have happened to him? You see, years before this tragic event, Fawcett was attempting a much riskier feat. He was trying to be the first pilot to fly around the world solo in a hot air balloon. Now, can you imagine spending two weeks in a tiny container just to break a world record? If you're wondering, here's what you'll need to fly around the globe. A sound navigation system, a wealthy sponsor, and tireless endurance. Even though balloons are the oldest flying vehicle, no one until Fawcett managed to fly around the world with them. And it sure wasn't a breeze. It's day one of Fawcett's second attempt to fly around the world in a balloon. The year is 1997, and an anxious crowd gathers in St. Louis, waiting for Fawcett's takeoff. The pilot walks into the stadium with a big smile. He certainly doesn't look the part of an adventurer trying to achieve the impossible. But this is the trip of his life. To prepare, he trained to acclimatize himself to an altitude of 12,000 feet. The conditions are harsh. He's flying in an unpressurized cabin and in between the clouds. It seems unlikely he'll make it all the way, but there he goes. The balloon launches into the air. The crowd beneath is cheering and waving him goodbye. The wind of about 5 knots allows the balloon to launch. On the first night, one of his heaters breaks. It is freezing outside the cabin, but he gets through the night. Fawcett's secret weapon is the world's first balloon autopilot. It gets lonely up there, and the constant need to focus makes one very soon tired. At night, he turns on the autopilot to get some sleep. It fires the burners in a computer program sequence and keeps the balloon on the flight path. Fawcett needs to wake up and operate the burners to change the altitude. After three days, a first victory. He has flown across the Atlantic Ocean. He flies solo, but a team accompanies him on the ground. They communicate mostly through email sent via satellite. At the end of the first week, the Mission Control Center receives an alarming email from Fawcett. 
Dark clouds are mounting on the horizon. It looks like the weather is turning against him. He can see the thunderstorm from the balloon, but there is no way to predict how strong it is. Fawcett is determined to fly through the clouds, despite the risks. He is flying at 1,000 feet above the ground with no visibility. Somehow, he makes it through. His flight continues through Libya, Iran, and India. It looks like nothing will stop him now, but he is already exhausted. He is uncertain how much longer he can keep going. Inside the balloon, the meals are small rations, and he uses a bucket as a toilet. Unfortunately, he has lost a lot of fuel while crossing the Atlantic. Halfway through India, the balloon crashes into a tree. He flew an astounding 9,600 miles from St. Louis until his landing spot. Steve didn't achieve his goal, but he won't give up. To finally be successful, Fawcett needs to change his strategy. His new plan is to fly over the southern hemisphere. It was the first time anyone would ever try that. His idea is simple. In the southern part of the globe, he would fly mostly over water. This would help him fly faster, as he would only need flight permission from five countries along the way. If you were on the ground as Fawcett flew by, maybe you wondered what that flying object in the sky was. As he flew over Cape Town in South Africa, over 50 people reported seeing strange flying objects. Sorry to disappoint your fantasy, folks, but it was just Steve Fawcett and his balloon. His first attempt to fly around the world through the Southern Hemisphere almost worked out. He got lucky. When he reached Australia, he caught a jet stream that helped him speed up to about 115 knots. That's three times the speed of a gazelle. Morale was high, as Fawcett had already broken his distance record by flying over 13,500 miles. Under his feet, the beautiful Australian landscape is filled with deserts and dry lakes. He crossed the Australian coast at 8.22 p.m. local time, and his next expected landfall was in Chile, over 7,500 miles away. But again, a huge thunderstorm got in his way. After entering the storm, the balloon showed how fragile it was. The lightning and fierce winds tore the balloon apart. This time, he wouldn't make it through. He fell into the ocean as the balloon caught fire. A rescue team waited until morning to go look for Fawcett. A Hercules aircraft rescued him from open waters. In his sixth attempt, Fawcett made it around the world in a hot air balloon. The Spirit of Freedom balloon landed in Queensland, Australia after a two-week flight across the globe. He flew at speeds of over 200 miles per hour and journeyed over 19,263 miles. Fawcett had done it. He was the first solo pilot to cross the world in a balloon. However, he didn't stop there. Soon after breaking this world record, he wanted to do the same on a different vehicle. He convinced Richard Branson, the owner of Virgin Atlantic, to fund a single jet-powered aircraft, later called the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer. On the 8th of February 2005, the Global Flyer took off. It set out to circumnavigate the Tropic of Cancer, an incredible length of around 23,000 miles. Out of luck, or sheer ingenuity, Fawcett broke yet another world record. He overcame a major fuel loss early on in the flight and made it all the way back to Salina in Kansas, where he originally departed from. Did this story make you want to hop on a hot air balloon? Fawcett was the expert in aerial adventures and extreme conditions. This is why his disappearance in the Sierra Nevada mountains was full of mystery. What could have happened to take down such an experienced pilot? On the 3rd of September 2007, 
Fossa took off from a Nevada ranch with this single-engine plane named Super Decathlon. It was a simple, leisurely day flight that took a dark turn. Fawcett never made it back to the ranch. A search-and-rescue team was sent to find the pilot and his plane, but they returned empty-handed. It wasn't until a year later that a hiker found some of Fawcett's belongings near Mammoth Lakes. Then an aerial search located the remains of Fawcett's two-seater at an elevation of 10,000 feet. The mystery was solved with the help of advanced technology. In the world's first hexagonal wind tunnel facility, experts recreated the weather conditions of the day of Fawcett's flight. They were trying to understand if the downdrafts from the Sierra Nevada mountains could have brought his plane to the ground. With the help of a smaller plane replica, they made a disturbing discovery. That day, visibility was normal, but the wind currents swelled the plane like a leaf. A sudden downdraft most likely disoriented Fawcett and made him lose control of the aircraft, causing him to crash directly into the mountains. The plane's engine wasn't powerful enough to overcome the wind forcing it into the ground. It turns out it was entirely out of Fawcett's control. The discovery of the debris brought closure to this unfortunate case. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. You plan to spend your summer vacation in Africa. The final destination is the Sahara Desert. It's located in northern Africa, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea. You're excited to ride camels and learn about the region's rich cultures. You hop on an extensively long flight, and finally, you are here. You find yourself in the world's biggest hot desert. Can you believe it's 3 million square miles? You're ready for your first adventure after drinking liters of ice-cold water. The guide gives you a choice. You can spend two weeks visiting a collection of oases, or you can help them solve an ongoing local mystery. Deep into the desert, near this Algerian town, lies a mystery begging to be solved. A collection of huge, spotted circles in the sand. There are dozens of them, stretching for miles in a straight line. The circles were first identified via Google Earth images several years ago. People have debated them for years, but no one seems to know the answer. The strange thing is that they are so many miles away from any towns, roads, or human activity. The quickest way to discover the truth behind the circles is asking questions. You grab your notebook and set out to talk to locals. Everyone is helpful in this scenario – geographers, anthropologists, elders, and historians. The first person you talk to is a map expert. You need to understand if those circles were authentic or a satellite glitch. You end up interviewing the people who take Google Earth satellite pictures. The circles are really there. They appear in multiple pictures from many years. Then, let's understand why they are there in the first place. After two days of interviews, you have your first lead. The circles could be the result of oil activity. Experts explained why this would make sense. Algeria is a rich area for natural resources, so this would be a sensible guess. Usually, to find out if there is anything worth extracting, companies would undertake seismic surveys. Seismic surveys are a way of analyzing the Earth's surface by sending shock waves into the ground. Depending on how these waves bounce back, you'll know what is located there. A special vehicle could have marked the soil that way. So, did we unravel the mystery? Mm, not quite so. As you know, the Sahara Desert is one of the driest areas on the planet. 
The average high temperatures in summer are over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. To survive there, people need to find ways of accessing water. So, these circles could be a kind of ruin or leftovers from ancient water wells. Again, I'd say this is a sensible guess. Ready for some fact-checking? Some anthropologists agree that these circles could be ancient fogueras. Fogera is the name of a 2,500-year-old style of irrigation system, usually found in northern Africa. It is also known as a kanat in other places in northern Africa. Locals would dig a deep well at an elevated point, deep enough to tap into underground water. They would then dig parallel shafts at regular distances. Then, they would dig an underground channel that connected the city to the well. Solely with the help of gravity, water would run from the well to the city. This traditional technology provided water for crops, livestock, and humans. Now, let's say these wells made human-made oases possible. Even the closest municipality name was an indication that this could be true. The name Fogaret Esaoia is actually named after Fogarets, these ancient wells. Now, this lead was proving to be very accurate. You decide to travel over there to see for yourself. You take a local bus, sit back, and enjoy the ride. The landscape in northern Algeria is filled with ancient-looking towns. You even see ruins of wells along the way, on the outskirts of smaller cities. Opening Google satellite images, you can see the Kanat's markings on the ground, a series of holes running down several miles. But as soon as you arrive, you find out you were wrong. Dale Lightfoot, one of the world's leading experts on Kanat's, said that the circles were definitely not Kanat's. Even the satellite images confirm this difference. Uh-oh, we were so close! Apparently, Kanats or Fagras would not run down a straight line. They wouldn't be shaped like circles. Another clue that this wasn't the case was that there were no towns at the end. The circles were really far away from any human activity, and Kanats were explicitly built to provide water for human settlements. Well, it sure was a good try. You almost gave up on this mystery when you decided to take one more field trip. It was days of preparation, pick up cars, food, equipment, all so that the mystery of the Sahara circles could be unraveled. On the first day, you drove over 99 miles into the desert. You were always curious to see what this part of the world looked like. Over there, you see nothing but mustard yellow dunes. The night sky is pretty decent, though. You can see the entire Milky Way with your own eyes. You set up camp and sleep under a canopy of stars. The next day, tension grows. There's no cell reception. Oh dear. But thankfully, you added the coordinates of the circles to your Google map. And surprise, the offline mode works out there. You follow the coordinates, but it leads you astray. You start to get nervous, thinking this was all in vain. But you and the team get into the car and drive a few more miles past the coordinates on your phone. After a very bumpy ride, you can't believe your eyes. There it is, an enormous crater dug on the sand, surrounded by 12 smaller holes. From up high, it looks like a clock, without the pointers, of course. On the ground, they're very faint, so faint you almost miss them. Searching the area, you notice all the holes had something similar, metal wires, thin wires that you can pull from the ground. They're buried deep, so you start digging. An object starts to reveal itself. Uh Uh-oh, 
it looks like old dynamite. This certainly surprises you. Um, better stop digging to avoid any accidents. At the end of the survey, you feel satisfied, but still curious. What could all this dynamite mean? And who put it there? What comes next is the turning point of your adventure. Walking back to the car, you see something shining on the ground. You approach the item with curiosity. It's round and rusty and looks like a sardine can. What's that doing here? Could this give you more clues about the circle's mystery? Just in case, you pick it up and put it in the car. Back in the city, the puzzle pieces start to reveal the story behind the Sahara circles. You bring photos in the sardine can and show them to local experts. They analyze your material and give you an intriguing verdict. As it turns out, guess number one was the closest one to the truth. So, what happened to the first guess? Why do we need to keep digging deeper? Well, because it was only half right. The Sahara circles are not a historical footprint of seismic surveying. Back when the circles were made, this technology didn't even exist. But they sure are related to oil exploration. The dynamite-filled holes were an old method for oil searching. The circles are the leftovers of surveyors looking for resources underground. And the sardine cans? Well, they were left by the workers who held explosion works. You gotta eat, right? According to the model of the can, this happened more or less around the 1950s and 1960s. So these circles aren't even that ancient. More like modern ones, if you ask me. Well, well, well. Hope you are glad you tagged along and helped unravel this mystery. See you in the next mystery-solving adventure. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side. Ancient as the world, a huge bottomless hole releases disgusting smells filling the area around. Strange sounds come from the depths of this mysterious pit. People are too afraid to walk nearby and discuss this hole out loud. If you look down there, you'll see nothing but ominous darkness. All this sounds like a plot from some horror movie. But this is reality. This creepy hole really exists. And now we're going there to find out what it is. You get on a plane and fly to Southwest Asia. Then you go to the south of the Arabian Peninsula. You get in the car and drive to the place called the Well of Barhut. Nobody agrees to go with you because they believe this place is so dangerous. It's located in the desert of Yemen's Almara province. To get there, you drive through dunes and lifeless plains. The closer you get to the hole, the quieter it becomes around. There's almost no vegetation, and you don't see any animals. Only a few birds fly by. Your GPS says you're almost there. You stop the car, get out, and an unpleasant smell immediately sneaks into your nose. You can't figure out what it is. Some people think the hole smells like rotten eggs. You cover your nose with a bandage and head forward. You still feel the odor even through the fabric. You take a few steps forward and finally see it. A giant hole in the middle of the desert. It's 100 feet wide. This is almost the size of a basketball court. But it's not the size that scares you, but the darkness. It's so black that you can't see anything. It's like someone spilled a spot of black paint in the middle of golden sand. The sun's shining brightly, but the hole absorbs all the sun's rays. People flew over this place in a helicopter. Photographers used the most powerful lenses for their cameras to see at least something, but they caught nothing but darkness. 
Even a special drone was floating directly over the pit but couldn't notice anything. And the darkness is so deep that no one has been able to find out the exact depth yet. According to approximate calculations, the depth of the hole is somewhere between 320 and 820 feet. This is almost half as tall as the Empire State Building. You throw a stone into the hole, hear it knocking against the walls. With each knock, the sound becomes quieter. You can't hear the moment when it touches the bottom. You decide to spend the night in the car next to the hole. For several hours, you toss and turn in the seat and can't sleep. Finally, you manage to do that, and you're having a real nightmare. Terrible monsters come out of the hole and surround you. Fortunately, the first sun rays wake you up. Locals also believe this place is a prison for some evil creatures. They scream and emit an unpleasant smell. You hear strange, scary sounds and can't explain their nature. The smell is so disgusting that you get an attack of nausea, so you move away from the hole a few feet to the side. At the moment, the giant hole in Yemen is one of the most poorly studied and mysterious wonders of nature. Scientists still don't know where it came from, what's hidden inside, and how old it is. Many people say the hole is millions of years old. Perhaps it'd been formed before the time when dinosaurs walked on Earth. The worst thing is, is that it's almost impossible to explore the hole. There's very poor ventilation inside and almost no oxygen. This makes any research dangerous and expensive. Locals are afraid to talk out loud about the hole because it can bring bad luck and troubles to life. Also, some legends say the Well of Barhut threatens all life on the planet and can cause the end of the world. For centuries, there were legends that evil spirits that live down there sometimes get out. However, there are also more scientific hypotheses. Maybe construction works created the hole. It could be soil drilling or mining. All this could have caused vibrations inside the Earth's crust and create the deep well. Experts say that erosion of limestone or moving geological salts or brines could have created this pit. There's also a scientific theory similar to the legend about the end of the world. It says the big hole is the mouth of a dormant supervolcano. At any moment, it can wake up and spew a million tons of lava and volcanic ash. Maybe further research will be able to solve the mystery of the hole. Now we're going to another mysterious hole. This time it's located not on the ground, but in the water. After the hot sands of Yemen, you plunge into the cool waters of the coast of Belize. Here, you're going to visit the Great Blue Hole. You're sailing on a boat. The water around is blue, but as soon as you get into the hole's territory, the water becomes darker. The huge black pit lies right in the middle of the Blue Sea. It's 1,000 feet wide and 400 feet deep. The Statue of Liberty could easily fit inside. The most interesting thing is that the hole has a perfectly round shape. It's like someone created it artificially and used it as a huge storage. For a long time, it was believed the hole was created with outer space technologies or by representatives of an ancient disappeared civilization. Unlike the pit in the middle of the desert, you can go down into this one. And some people did it. The theory about the artificial origin of this hole was rejected in 1971. That year, the famous researcher Jacques Cousteau went down there and proved the Great Blue Hole was created by nature. It happened hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of years ago. Thanks to the structure of the stalactites formations discovered inside, he found out about a strong earthquake that occurred on the planet about 200 million years ago. There was a shift in the tectonic platform. After that, the ground collapsed more and formed a funnel 
It happened at the end of the Ice Age when the ice began to melt. But this isn't just a deep pit. There are many underground caves inside. It's like a long maze where you can easily get lost. To dive into this underwater cave, you'll need a large supply of oxygen and a team of professional divers who know these mazes well. So, you put on a scuba suit and two oxygen tanks and go down into the water. In the beginning, you meet a lot of marine life, several species of turtles, sharks, octopi, and more than 60 species of corals. And the deeper you go down, the emptier the hole becomes. On the smooth walls, you notice entrances to intricate mazes. Flooded caves are interesting with stalactites and stalagmites, but you don't risk going far into the caves. Just like inside the Egyptian pyramids, some people couldn't find their way back here. So, you decide to go down to the very bottom of the hole. But you can't do this without a very special vessel. So you need to pay a lot of money and rent a submarine. Or, you can sit at home and watch the dive into the hole online. At the end of 2018, a team of scientists went on an expedition to the bottom of the blue hole and made a live broadcast. They managed to take new photos inside and created the first 3D map of this place. Closer to the bottom, they discovered new types of stalactites in the form of icicles. These stalactites had been here even before the big blue hole filled with water. Also, a thick layer of hydrogen sulfide was found deep inside. This substance completely absorbs sunlight. That's why you find yourself in absolute darkness. And in this darkness, in the lower part of the pit, scientists found remains of mollusks, turtles, and snails. Sometimes marine creatures got here, but can't get out because of a lack of oxygen. But the most unexpected thing that scientists found there belongs to people. Somehow, a plastic bottle got to the deepest part of the hole. In 1945, five TBF Avenger aircraft took flight for a routine training exercise around the Bermuda Triangle. In the middle of the exercise, the planes were struck by intense rain and heavy winds, despite the clear weather forecast. The pilots became extremely disoriented and radioed the base to report that their navigational equipment had stopped working. The last thing the base heard was, when the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we'll all go down together, and then static. The five planes and their 14 crew members were never seen or heard from again. On his very first voyage to the New World in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed through the Bermuda Triangle. Columbus reported that one night when he was on the deck of the ship, he noticed a giant light appear in the distance, unlike anything he had ever seen before. Columbus looked at his compass for direction, and it gave off erratic readings. You might have noticed that the Bermuda Triangle doesn't appear on any world map. This is because official institutions refuse to acknowledge that the area actually exists. A popular theory suggests that rogue waves are responsible for the many disappearances. Rogue waves are called extreme storm waves by scientists. They occur when different weather patterns take place at the same time and cause large unexpected waves. Witnesses say that the waves look like giant walls of water. These waves could explain why ships go down fast and without leaving any trace. The Bermuda Triangle is home to some pretty intense and unexpected weather. Storms build up quickly and unexpectedly, then disappear soon after. If you blink, you might miss it. 
This could explain why few distress signals are issued. Pilots and sailors never saw the weather coming. No one knows exactly how many ships and planes have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. The rough estimate is 50 ships and 20 planes. Most of the time, the disappearances had no explanation and no wreckage has ever been left behind. Another bizarre theory trying to solve the Bermuda Triangle mystery comes from Charlie Berlitz. He insists that the area is home to the lost city of Atlantis. The missing ships and planes and malfunctioning equipment, according to him, were all caused by rays of energy let out by the special energy crystals that power Atlantis. While this sounds silly, Berlitz's theory was convincing enough that over 20 million people bought his book worldwide. In the year 1800, a large sailing vessel called the USS Pickering departed from the U.S. on its way to the West Indies. The ship sailed into the Bermuda Triangle along with its 90-man crew and was never heard from again. The USS Pickering was the first ever confirmed ship to vanish in the Bermuda Triangle. It's believed that the ship was taken out by a storm, but because no wreckage was ever found, we'll never know for sure. When the TBF Avenger planes went missing, a massive search operation was conducted. Boats and planes searched the Bermuda Triangle for any signs of the aircraft. One of the boats searching was a PBM-5 Mariner airboat. The airboat took flight at 7.27 p.m. and called in a routine radio message three minutes later. Then, it was never heard from again. No trace was ever found of the rescue airboat or the five Avenger aircraft. An enormous investigation was launched into the disappearance of all these vehicles, but nothing was ever discovered. This particular area of the ocean is one of the most heavily traveled shipping routes in the world. Some skeptics believe that this fact solves the mystery. Statistically, the busier the area, the higher the frequency of accidents and disappearances. While this makes sense, it's not the frequency of disappearances that's responsible for the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. It's the lack of explanation or wreckage found. On the ocean floor, decomposing organisms let off large concentrations of methane gas that gets trapped under the water. This gas can build up until, boom, it ruptures. The gas surges up to the surface and erupts. If a ship was in the area of one of these ruptures, the water would become much less dense and cause the ship to sink rapidly and without warning. Scientists believe this could be the cause of the many disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. While this theory makes a lot of sense, it doesn't seem too likely. The U.S. Geological Survey has stated that no large releases of gas are believed to have occurred in this area for the past 15,000 years. The ocean floor is made of rocks containing a lot of magnetite. It's more like iron. Magnetic fields react to high concentrations of magnetite on the ocean floor, which may start a sort of conflict between the two. It can often lead to various weather anomalies and, as a result, navigation issues. And naturally, any changes in the ocean floor or the Earth's magnetic fields influence the Bermuda Triangle a lot. Since the magnetic field is constantly moving, it might be also taking the Bermuda Triangle with it. Now that people know where the triangle is, it's easy to avoid it. It supposedly moves eastward together with the magnetic poles. But scientists still can't answer where exactly it will be in a couple of years. Some people blame all the disasters on the extraterrestrial paranormal activity. Others suppose it's all about raging natural phenomena. 
There's another triangle in Lake Michigan. Just like the one near Bermuda, the Michigan Triangle got its shady reputation for some disappearances. The first recorded one dates back to 1679. A large vessel, one of the largest of that time, set out on an expedition. Yet, once it got in the sinister triangle, it never came back. Much later, an aircraft disappeared in this triangle. The skies are usually very clear there, but back in 1883, some people witnessed abnormal things in the area. Some claim to have seen large blocks of ice falling from the skies, and the crew even managed to save one as hard proof. Meanwhile, the Pacific Ocean mystery area is another sinister triangle. Off the south coast of Japan, not far away from Tokyo, there's a sea where plenty of ships met their doom, disappearing without a trace in these waters. They call it the Devil's Triangle. Some scientists believe the cause of anomalies is the environmental changes. Also, there's a really high concentration of methane hydrates on the bottom of the ocean in the Pacific Triangle area. You're deviating from your original course and sailing in the wrong direction. There's the Caribbean Sea near the triangle peppered with small islands. The seafloor here isn't deep. The ship can get in shallow waters. And now the ship is stuck on a shoal and you have no idea where you are. If this were the 21st century, the ship's captain would be able to reach the shore using GPS and other modern navigation. But the most interesting thing is that the compass would work correctly this time, since the magnetic north pole hasn't already coincided with the true one for a long time in the territory of the Bermuda Triangle. The Agonic Line is somewhere far away from here. There are no problems with navigation now. But for some reason, this is where ships disappear. In fact, not just here. Throughout the Atlantic Ocean, there are places where many more ships were gone. The Bermuda Triangle is not even in the top 10 of such places. One of the main reasons why many ships are lost here is that one of the most popular shipping routes in the Atlantic passes through the Bermuda Triangle. And the more ships in one place, the more shipwrecks. Simple probability. Then, it just starts getting weird. Other theories say that there's a space-time rift in this region. Ships and planes fall into this rift and end up in the past or the future. But for some reason, there's not a single proof of this myth. There's no reason to think that the rift is hidden somewhere here. The base of an extraterrestrial civilization is located in the Bermuda Triangle. Visitors from other galaxies steal sea vessels along with the crew, so no one finds the wreckage of the ships. This is also a popular myth that has no scientific justification. The Kraken lives somewhere in the Triangle. It's a huge squid that sinks ships and also is a legend that sailors tell each other. However, gigantic squids live in the depths of the ocean. They can grow to the size of a half a train car, but no cases have ever been recorded where they sunk a large vessel. And in the area of the Bermuda Triangle, they have never ever been seen. People in the past didn't know about the existence of these creatures. So when they saw them for the first time, they described them as huge, terrible monsters. Giant squids are some of the most elusive creatures on Earth, and scientists had to use sonar equipment to find them. They don't like to leave the dark depths and are likely to be afraid of the sound of any ship. So that should squash the squid as a suspect. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just